Thanks to Warby Parker for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Get boutique quality, stylish eyewear and sunglasses at revolutionary prices. Try them yourself by going to warbyparker.com/fool to order your free home try-on kit with free shipping all around. It's Wednesday, April 26th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzman and Aaron Bush. Happy Wednesday, gents. Hey, Chris. Happy Wednesday. This is one of those days where we've got three companies we're going to talk about. We could easily talk about three. We could talk about like 10 other companies. That's how many companies are reporting today. But uh, we have to choose because you know what? We're not doing an hour long show. We could. I don't know if anyone would listen. Uh, <laughs> so, two things would happen if we did an hour long show. Um, Long time listeners would, to your point, they would just cut out. They'd just be like, I'm done. I, I'm it's at once they hit the 35 minute mark. I was like, I had to pull the plug. And the other thing is, uh, Christine Hargis is coming in a little bit to host Industry Focus, and we don't want to incur the wrath of Christine Hargis. She'll boot us out and the Industry Focus crew. So let's uh, let's start with signs of life. I can't believe I'm saying this. Signs of life from Twitter shares up 11 percent this morning after a first quarter report that included Aaron a rise in monthly active users. The revenue fell. For those of you out there who actually pay attention to money, the <laughs> revenue fell, but that seems to matter less than the fact that uh, monthly active users are on the rise. Yeah, I think the the ten percent <laughs> pop in the stock today is a little misplaced, in my opinion. I don't really think it was that great of a quarter, to be honest with you, Chris. I think I think you could say it was a mixed bag. You know, revenue is down, margins and cash flow were up, users were up, but ultimately, I do think. When you piece it all together, the news is more bad than it is good. Wow, really? I think so. I think on one hand, um, it's clear that Twitter is slowly making changes. Um, they're slow. They're ungodly slow when it comes to you know handling you know user issues like abuse um, and just improving the actual timeline. Um, but I mean, they are improving their cost discipline. Free cash flow is growing. The user base is growing. It, daily active users is up fourteen percent year over year, which actually is. Is pretty great, and I do think that is because of some of these efforts that they have put into place um, from the product perspective. Um, but that said, revenue like you can't just ignore that. Like that is that is huge. Um, it's down eight percent over last year, and this is the eleventh quarter in a row of it decelerating. The first quarter that it's down, uh, that's pretty bad. And I think the the moral of the story here is is actually pretty simple, and it's that Twitter's ads currently are not competitive with Facebook. And Google, and it's not even close, and it's a huge undertaking for them to become competitive. So you can celebrate, you know, all these other wins, but at the end of the day, this, this is the business. <laughs> right. Um, and so, turning the ship around, it's still a multi-year process, um, and the slower that they move, the higher the odds of them just getting whacked. From so the people who are. On Twitter itself, but also just reporting in the media, etc., who are saying, among other things, CEO Jack Dorsey has bought himself some time. This was a good quarter. Let's quiet down the drumbeat of he needs to choose between being CEO of Twitter and being CEO of Square. You're saying no. <laughs> I mean, I think this is beyond him at this point. This is beyond what any one person can really change at this point. I do think. A lot of the changes that he has put into place have been positive, but revenue—you can't can't yeah. overlook that. 
Yeah, and Aaron mentioned the competition from Google and Facebook, and though as far as digital sales goes, those are definitely the the big giants in the room. But then, as, as Twitter is doubling down on its live video strategy, they're starting to compete more and more with Snap, which has a very engaged user base. The growth there has slowed a little bit. It'll be interesting to see what Snap's metrics look like and how those compared to to Twitter, just as far as ad engagement and user growth. But yeah, it's not not a good combination when you have users going up but ad revenue going down. And, and Twitter said that they expect that disconnect to continue for the rest of the year. So this isn't this probably won't be the last quarter that revenue <laughs> goes down. Wow. And in the meantime, they their, their pace of stock based compensation has receded a little bit, but their diluted share count increased over one percent just from the last quarter. So in in the process, as revenue has completely decelerated and now is declining, uh, their their share count has climbed up. So I went back and I looked, okay, if if Twitter wanted to bring its share count back to the same level it was in 2014, a few months after it went public, they would have to spend $1.9 billion just to get back to that break-even level with the share count. So what, what that shows is that the the bar that they have to to cross at some point to reward shareholders it just it perpetually is getting higher as they continue to dilute shareholders so that's not a good trend to have when your revenue is dropping well and share based compensation that's one of those things that if you're just the average investor it's it's understandable if your eyes gloss over and it's it's easy to just sort of like dismiss it and and focus on the more headline-oriented things like revenue, like monthly active users. But when we talk about some of these tech companies potentially putting themselves up for sale, you need to recognize that share-based compensation is a huge factor in that. The fact that they are going out and like hiring people and convincing them to stay on board and not jump ship, a lot of that has to do with look, we're gonna we're gonna give you more shares, you know that kind of thing. I mean, go back and look at LinkedIn being acquired by Microsoft. As much as anything, it was the share-based compensation within LinkedIn that made the the leaders of that company go, oh, you know what, we <laughs> we got to figure something out quick. Yeah, because that's really the, one of the main currencies they have for paying their employees, and obviously. Competition between <laughs> employers in Silicon Valley is not going to disappear, so that that I, I think that's a dangerous thing uh, for Twitter shareholders and something to watch because, at first glance, on the balance sheet it does look pretty strong. You have net cash of two point two billion dollars, as Aaron mentioned. You have free cash flow, which is going up, but stock-based compensation is still a huge component for that positive cash flow production. So the balance sheet to me is not as strong as it looks on the surface because again. $1.9 billion just to get to break even with your share count two years ago, that takes up most of their net cash today. So, the, the, the investments that they've been making up to this point are not paying off. And at some point, uh, that, that trend has to reverse for shareholders to, to be rewarded. Yeah, and one other thing David and I were talking about earlier today is just how slow that they move and what that what that really means when you look long term. I think it's easy to to kind of look at these incremental changes and think about where things should go, but what <laughs> the pace that they move, these other larger tech companies, Facebook, Google, whatever, they could just do it at the snap of a finger. What these guys take six months to do, you know. I was going to ask you about that, and it's it's in some ways an unfair question because there's you know there's unless you're uh, spying. Uh, on headquarters at Twitter, there's no way for you to have information to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why do you think that is? 
And I've seen I've seen yeah. you write about this. I've seen other people touch on it. The image, the popular image that we have of Silicon Valley is, among other things, this is you know it's a fast culture, it's a nimble culture. The way yeah. things move at Twitter, it, they might as well be the U.S. Department of you know whatever. Like they, they, <laughs> when you think of bureaucracy, you think of Washington D.C. When you think of fast and nimble and cutting edge, you think of Silicon Valley, and Twitter's lack of speed is yeah. really astonishing. I, I do think I know one big reason behind it. I think a lot of it stems from just the very early days of the company. They never had to struggle to reach product market fit. So never in their their journey to figure out how to improve what they are doing, they never had they never had an issue. They just threw something out there and it worked. And so then they just kept on capitalizing on what worked, but never really changing the product itself. Um, but now that they're up competing against these companies that have been changing their platform at pretty innovative speeds um, for years now, they're just finding like that gap so so much larger that it's just in comparison, it's just it takes so much more time to get out of. Yeah, it seems like Twitter just doesn't have near the focus on the actual product. Like what what is our platform fundamentally compared to Snap or or Facebook, where you have leaders who are so product driven and that drives everything they do and then from there you find the business model that fits but with twitter it just seems like they're still very scattered trying to figure out the direction of the company and what their actual product is all right let's move on to chipotle first quarter profits came in much higher than expected same store sales were up 18% i realize that is off of a go back a year in time uh, it's off a terrible quarter a year ago still it's nice to see that it's up 18%. Um, stock up a little bit, not amazing, although it has risen about 30% in the last six months. So I, I, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't expect too much of a pop off of this. Yeah, I think the key for investors is that the metrics are moving in the right direction. Like the turn, I think you can safely say the turnaround has begun. So as long as they can keep moving at this pace, I think good things are ahead for shareholders. But it still will take time. Like it'll probably be at least a year and a half, I think, before we get safely beyond. Um, or get back to those pre-crisis levels as far as metrics go, but yeah, same store sales up about 18%. Their restaurant level operating margins are trending up. So this quarter, it was almost at 18%, but that's still quite a bit lower than about the 28% uh, restaurant level operating margin we saw right before the crisis hit in 2015. So all those metrics like restaurant sales, sales as a whole across the company, margins, they're they're moving in the right direction. It's a definitive turnaround from where the company's been going over the past year and a half, but still some work to do to get back to those pre-crisis levels. Yeah, and when I was looking at some of the some or just reading through the column what they've been doing to to move back to the levels that they were, I think I I came across pretty impressed what they're doing. If you look for example at the the digital sales or the online sales that increased 54% over the past year. I know that's something in the past we've talked about. Chipotle is not very good at that compared to others. So it seems like they're moving in the right direction. Still have room to improve. Um, they're revamping their restaurant tour program, um, which also was a was a pain point. Just as as it's just a management program. Yeah. So this is their management program, and Chipotle is always you know promoted internally. But as you if you grow too fast and you promote too quickly, it could lead to problems, especially if you incentivize poorly. So they've been doing a lot of work around figuring out what metrics are best to incentivize. Their managers and field 
um, team leaders and and so it looks like like that is improving um, just how just how they're interacting with consumers and turnover of, of you know their leaders and that's good um, and then they also just closed this past quarter 15 shop house locations and so they're kind of moving past that Still saga. Sad about that though yeah mm-hmm. so it's 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 unfortunate for those of us in the past that were optimistic at some point. But it, it is good that they are diverting those resources now to, to higher impact endeavors. I, I'm uh, a Chipotle shareholder. I'm glad they decided to pull the plug on Shophouse because I got tired of wondering when they were going to roll it out. Because the first couple of years, what you heard was a lot of like, well, they're taking their time. They're not going to rush it. But at some point, you move so slowly that it's natural to ask the question, what is wrong with this concept? Because right. either it's ready to be rolled out, or it's not. And so, the fact that they just said, you know what, we're packing it in on that. We're just going to focus on the the name brand locations and go from there. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, and on top of everything else Chipotle was dealing with over the past year, I think, <laughs> trying to work out issues at, at Shophouse, it was just becoming a distraction. And I think, to me, that really was the theme of this quarter. It was just very clear that Chipotle is refocusing. And I think part of, part of that um, is boosted by Steve Ells taking over the sole uh, leadership role as CEO, uh, Monty Moran, who was co-CEO for a while, he he retired late last year. So I think you're seeing that focus from Steve Ells, and in the call he mentioned revamping that restaurateur program, as Aaron mentioned. But a, a focus of that is a, a quote relentless focus on customer experience. So sort of a Jeff Bezos esque comment there, just really trying to figure out what the priority is for their management program. And they mentioned that they now have the lowest turnover with general managers in more than eight years. So, a lot of things uh, moving the right direction. So, I think you're seeing internally just a refocusing on prioritizing the the guest experience. As they get traffic into the stores, um, their throughput should really be able to increase with digital orders because uh, they're, they're starting to launch kitchens in the back of of the restaurants specifically for digital. So that should theoretically take people out of that that front line. Uh, more people can go through that front line. The the restaurant in other words will just be able to pump out more burritos, more right. orders. So if they can get that traffic back to pre-crisis levels and hopefully beyond that, these stores could be much more profitable than they were a few years ago and they were incredibly profitable then. Yeah, I mean that and that is sort of in some ways the promise of this Investment. If you are, if you're th- like, if you're a shareholder or a potential shareholder, because the headlines have been so bad and rightly so for for the last couple of years. But you go back to 2013, 2014, and they were putting up these type of same store sales numbers off of you know not off of a low base, off of a pretty high base. So when they would come in with you know double digit comp increases. I mean that's that's just breathtaking. So the idea that they're looking at what Panera's been doing and saying, how can we do that? How can we get? How can we up the uh, you know just sort of the people walking in, picking up their food and walking out? If we can get our throughput even higher, that's great. And I think the biggest news out of all of this is that they're going to start testing two new desserts. Right? <laughs> is, is that the big news? What, oh yeah. That's what the, are, what are the desserts they're testing? Uh, so they only announced one of them. Um, it's called Bunuelos, I believe. It's these fried tortilla strips with honey, cinnamon, and sugar. So super healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Fits right with their yeah healthy ingredients. I mean, I, thing. I hear that honey is supposed to be healthy. I mean, I hear that from Cinnam- time to time. Cinnamon, I think. Cinnamon's a spice. Kind of, yeah. 
You know? Sugar. Just yeah. ignore that it's fried. You know what? <laughs> it's dessert. It's it's not supposed to be healthy if it's dessert. All right. Before we get to our next story, I got to say thanks to Warby Parker for supporting today's episode. They make high-quality, stylish, and affordable glasses that start at only $95, including prescription lenses. And they make buying glasses online easy and risk-free with their home try-on program. Uh, It allows you to order five pair of glasses. They're shipped directly to you. You can try them on in the comfort of your own home. Uh, You keep the frames for five days before sending them back using the prepaid return shipping label with no obligation to purchase. They've got great designs. They've got sunglasses. You don't need to need prescription glasses like me. You can just want to look stylish in a new pair of sunglasses and go to warbyparker.com slash fool. You're all set. But if you are getting prescription glasses, when you place an order, you'll have them within your hands within 10 business days. And I've said this before, I got mine even faster than that. Their attention to customer service is fantastic. Uh, Last but not least, for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. So, Try it out for yourself and see how good you look in their frames. Go to warbyparker.com slash fool, lowercase fool, warbyparker.com slash fool to order your own free home try-on kit with free shipping all around. And if you can't decide on a pair yourself, you just download the Warby Parker app on your iPhone or iPad and create a video of yourself in your home try-on frames where you can easily share that with your friends and family, and they'll help you pick the winner. Warbyparker.com slash fool and order your free home trials. Did you see, by the way, did you see David Gardner on Twitter? He had that uh, GIF file of him in the different, like he basically put out a Twitter poll. He's very committed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that takes some time. Very committed. I just, you know, I just went to my kids and I was like, what do you think? Here, here are the frames. And they're like, no, no, yeah, those. Go with those. <laughs> nice. iRobot shares hitting an all time high today after first quarter profits more than doubled expectations. This, uh, Aaron, this is not a beat by a penny type situation. They crushed it. Uh, they also raised their guidance for the full fiscal year. Holy cow. Roombas are taking over the world. Yes, they that's, are. That's all we can really say. Uh, but no, so, so yeah, they crushed expectations. And I think what we're seeing right now is that they're witnessing an inflection in the demand of the Roombas, which is which is very impressive. And believe it or not, the Roomba last year was the highest selling or the most sold vacuum cleaner in the U.S. in terms of dollars spent, um, which is wow. Yes, wow. <laughs> um, so to me, that almost feels like the rise of the Roomba occurred somewhat stealthily. Um, but looking at the product compared to past iterations, you really do see the improvements that that have been coming through. They just work better. They have more connected features, which will play a role more so as the connected homes inevitably um, start popping up more and more. Um, the Roomba itself obviously is killing it, but beyond the Roomba, there are other products and moves the company has made that I think also excite investors. The Brava, for one, that's iRobot's hardwood cleaner. Um, right now, that's still a tiny fragment of revenue, but it's selling well. Um, it also has these wipe consumables that that consumers need to buy, so it adds a form of recurring revenue for the company too, which which is always which is always good to see. Um, iRobot just bought back its Asian distributors, which which gives it more control in how it sells um, in that continent, and that's actually a pretty huge deal. So I think later this year we should expect Japan's growth to accelerate. We'll see them significantly ramp up business in China, and that should be a huge deal. And the Brava in particular, I think, could sell particularly well, just as hardwood floors are more of a norm over there. So really giving that that second product that they have a huge boost. And then lastly. 
the the innovation machine that they have just keeps on running. They're just as much of a software company at this point as as a vacuum cleaning robot company. Um, so new robot new new robots that perform new tasks like lawn mowing, um, whatever else they have um, in store should be expected. And as time rolls on, like these these robots are just going to do their jobs better and better. So I think investors should expect more more beats going forward. This is impressive. I was on their website and saw that they also have a robot pool cleaner. And I just thought, and I don't have a pool, but I just thought I would 100% buy one. Like if I owned a pool, there's, you know, there are some people, they actually enjoy mowing their lawn. I'm not one of them, but there are some people who just look like, you know what, it's, it's sort of relaxing. I'm outside in nature, you know, that kind of thing. I can't imagine anyone owning a pool and saying, "Ah, oh, you know, I'm looking forward to a, a, a day of zen and relaxation of cleaning my pool." It's like, no, buy that thing, set it loose on the bottom of your pool, and you're done. I think our, our digital age has made people lazy enough that iRobot is just—they're hitting the inflection point finally, where people just want to automate <laughs> everything they can. Do they? How much of their business is is a hundred percent of their business just consumer? Do they have any sort of? Business to business relationship where they're going to like I, I don't know like a, a hotel chain or something like that, uh, and just selling them en masse. I think it's now that they're entirely a consumer goods you know consumer facing company. Last year they divested a defense or a security division. I think they're primarily selling to the U.S. military at that point, and I, I think that makes sense because the consumer market is uh, sizable. Um, in the U.S. alone, uh, robot vacuum cleaners are about 20% of the total vacuum market. And that, so, just that robot vacuum cleaner portion, which is growing, is about $6 billion or so. So, that, there's a sizable market there. And iRobot really is the dominant brand in the U.S., in Europe, and Asia. So, I think doubling down and really focusing on that consumer market, that makes sense for them. And since they divested that um, uh Security division last year. I mean, the, the stock's done really well. I, I I don't follow this closely enough to know if that if those two are completely related or one caused the other. But to me, it makes sense for them to really focus on that consumer market because I think that's where the majority of the growth is. Aaron, stock's up about fifteen percent today. We you know we love it when a stock hits an all time high, but I have to ask, how, how expensive is this stock? When you look at it, do you think? Okay, this is great for shareholders, but this is kind of a price right now today. This is kind of a pricey stock. It is. It is a pretty pricey stock. I think it's definitely earned it. And just seeing today the stock go up fifteen percent, I think if this company continues to execute the way it, the way it has, and if this inflection point is real, then I don't think it is as pricey as it may seem to a lot of investors. Yeah, it's still just a two billion dollar mm-hmm. company, so I could see that. Bumping up, especially if they can maintain that brand leadership position, which they seem to have carved out pretty nicely. Mm-hmm. Before we get out of here, I should mention that uh, Rule Breakers, the service started by David Gardner that both Aaron and David work on, the new issue of Rule Breakers comes out today with two new stock recommendations from David Gardner and the team. And you can check it out by going to podcast.fool.com. Just scroll down to the bottom of the page 
and you can kick the tires on Motley Fool Rule Breakers. Check out the new issue. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll be right back.